Well, good morning, and welcome to West Meadows at Home. This is the continued practice we have of coming together as a church family on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. every single week. And, and while the place of our gathering may have changed over these past couple of weeks, the purpose, and we believe the blessing of coming together in this fashion, still remains unchanged. You know, it's exciting throughout the past couple of weeks, we've been hearing updates of, of stories where people are sharing these online links to family and friends uh, around Edmonton, the province, even across the nation. And we've had many guests join us. And so if you are part of our West Meadows family, welcome. We're glad you're with us today. If you are joining us for the first time, perhaps, or, or you've started joining us since we've gone online, we especially want to welcome you with us here today as well. Over the past two weeks, we have been walking through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And so far, as we've seen, he's been talking about things about himself in this first part of the letter. Because, you see, due to his commitment to Jesus Christ and advancing the good news of Jesus Christ, he's entered into periods of suffering. We've heard already that he is uh, physically imprisoned in Rome. He's under house arrest in Rome. And that he is figuratively and literally in chains for Christ. We've heard that he's enduring persecution from some of the ruling governmental powers that are pushing in against him, as well as some rivals within the faith itself that are combating against him for various reasons. And so really, Paul is getting it from both sides. There's those on the outside pressing in, and those on the inside trying to push him out. But in the midst of this, as Paul opens his letter that we've seen the last two weeks, he does so by expressing this great joy and this great confidence that remains in him. Because you see, even when there's this loss of freedom, even though he's experiencing the loss of these familiar patterns of life that he and we so much enjoy, even though he's in a situation where the future is uncertain, even though it seems like the darkest moment is where he lives right now, he knows God is still at work. He knows the good news of Jesus Christ is being advanced. And that serves as a light in his life that allows him to have joy. And because that is the most important identifying principle in his life, he says, as we read and studied last week, for him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, Having discussed things about himself, today we come to a part of the letter where it turns. And Paul starts to turn to talk about things about them. Them being the church in Philippi. You see, like Paul, this church was experiencing opposition from forces that were within, but also forces outside of themselves. Now, if you have ever been part of a church in the past or, or maybe even presently, you can maybe relate to some of these challenges that the church in Philippi was experiencing. You see, externally to themselves, there were people who were resistant to the good news of Jesus Christ. There were people who, who ridiculed those that were part of the church for their faith in Jesus Christ. External to themselves, there were also political forces that were at odds with what they believed and the values that they were promoting. And even aside from their church life, life in general was just hard at times. But then also internally. See, there was reports. Reports were starting to come to Paul that there was tension and conflict inside the church. And, and this was a great threat to the unity and the advancement of the gospel that he was promoting and so committed to. 
And so Paul begins to address these issues in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And if you have your Bibles with you or your Bible apps on your phones or devices, I, I invite you to turn there now as we'll be reading a few verses beginning in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And while you're looking for that, I just want to kind of summarize the main point that he is going to be promoting here today. And I can summarize that through a familiar phrase, one you've probably heard before. And here it is. United we stand, but divided we fall. United we stand, but divided we fall. This is a model that has been used by, by unions, by uh, political movements. We even find it in, in pop culture. There's, there's songs by people like, like Taylor Swift and Elton John who have included that in their lyrics. There's, there's movies like the, like the Avengers and, and Captain America who talk about these principles. But this saying became famous in culture and in history during the U.S. Revolution. However, it actually finds its roots in Scripture. It's, it's very similar to what Jesus said himself in, in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, but every city or household divided will not stand. The meaning's obvious of this phrase. The meaning is that if each of us is focused merely upon ourselves, upon our own goals, that we will not have unity, and that we will therefore stand in weakness. But when we rally together, when we rally together and have a commitment to a common purpose, then we can stand strong. Now, during the events that we find ourselves in these past few days, one of the fears that I have as a, as a pastor of this church and, and a leader in the community is that we will be divided in our relationships. Consider, for example, your relationship between you and friends. There, there's a chance for a division there because we're not able to go to coffee shops. We, we, we can't go to movies. We can't even visit each other in our own homes right now, and we're isolated from our friends. Consider yourself and your family. You know, apart from the occasional Facebook call that I've been able to make with my parents, I haven't seen my parents really for about two weeks now, and they only live 10 blocks from me. Consider yourself and your spouse. You know, nations who have been going through this coronavirus longer than we have are starting to have reports of significantly increased amounts of domestic violence and escalating divorce rates, sometimes 50% higher than they have been historically. Consider the potential division between yourself and your church, where because we can't attend church, we can't go to our life groups, we, we can't come to Sunday school, we, we can't come to youth group events, there's the possibility of losing that routine in fellowship. Uh, the relationship between yourself and God, where we're offering online courses and we're offering online opportunities to still study, such as the service that we put together each week. But now the onus is upon you to take the initiative for your own spiritual development and growth. And if we don't do that, there's a chance of division. You see, the pressure for the church in Philippi is different than the, church, than the pressure we have upon the church today. But, but, but I think words that Paul shares with us here will still offer encouragement and direction on how we can make sure that we do not stand alone, but stand together. You see, because the instructions he gives us here emphasize the importance in the manner in which we stand strong together. And here's how he explains it. Begin reading in verse 27. 
He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, whatever happens, in all situations, whether you are on top of the world or if you are under its thumb, in all situations, at all times, let your actions, let your words, let your attitudes be worthy as though they came from Jesus Christ himself. And then he continues by saying, then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who may oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Last week, we talked about how Paul was expecting to, to be released one day and that he plans to visit them when that time comes. And even while he's still in prison, he's receiving reports because people are able to visit him. And so he's hearing reports, even though he one day hopes to go see them with his own eyes. But what he's saying here is that regardless, regardless of the form of interaction that he receives from them, when they, the church of Philippi, are the topic of conversation, the only thing he wants to hear is that they are united as one. They're united in one spirit, where they know and they value that they all have the same Holy Spirit indwelling them, and that Holy Spirit brings them into fellowship. He wants to hear reports that that is the means by which they have all received the same faith in the gospel that gospel that has saved them all and brought them into the family of God, the gospel which is defined as the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, paid the price for our sins, was buried, as we're going to remember on Good Friday this week, but then rose victoriously on the third day according to Scripture, which we will celebrate on Sunday at Easter. See, he wants them to know that no matter what is taking place in their lives, they do not stand and they do not have to endure alone. He wants them to know that there is confidence, that there is power, that they can have resolve when they stand together. Whenever I think of this concept of, of people standing together, it reminds me of a, of a Peanuts cartoon that I saw a little while ago. And in this particular cartoon, Lucy demands that her brother Linus change the TV channel. Now, Linus responds to her saying, what makes you think that you can just walk right in here and take over? And then Lucy raises her hand, and she says, these five fingers right here. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Linus responds, which channel do you want? He says, and then as Lucy sits down to watch TV, Linus looks at his own hand and says to his fingers, why can't you guys get organized like that? You see, there's confidence. There's power. There's resolve when we stand together. But it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from the might of, of our own hands. It comes from the fact that we are united in one spirit in one faith, that we have one good news that transcends the challenges of the world that we find ourselves in. Because even if we are a people scattered across the city and across the region, even if we are a people from different places, different backgrounds, different social statuses, ages, genders, and struggles, we have a shared identity. And that shared identity is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And when brothers and sisters in Christ are brought together here in this particular place, we are referred to as the body of Christ here at West Meadows. And the body of Christ at West Meadows has a single mission, a mission to invite people to experience a life that is better with Jesus. And the ability to stand strong together, Paul says, is a sign. It's a sign to the world. First of all, to those in the world who may be opponents to our mission, who may be opponents to the good news of Jesus Christ, and this is what it's a sign of. It is a sign that they do not have the ability to stop the good news. They, in fact, have an inability to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ from going forward, and the rejection of that gospel simply leads to their own destruction. But it's also a sign to the faithful. It's a sign to those who are part of the body of Christ that not only will you overcome the present struggles and sufferings, but you will stand victorious one day on the day of Christ. Now, something I want you to understand about the letter that Paul's writing here to the church in Philippi. When he talks to them about standing victorious, about enduring struggles, about enduring till the day of Christ, he's talking to a group of people here who are going through some pretty serious stuff. And there is the possibility that they would not really see victory until the day of Christ, meaning until they actually pass from this life to the next. You know, even in our most troubling times, I don't think our struggles compare quite to what they were having to endure. But one thing we can share in common with them is this understanding that it's easy to stand together when things are going well. But when tough times come, man, that really starts to test one's resolve. You know, anybody here in Edmonton who has been a season ticket holder for the Oilers since the 80s can relate that there are good times and there are bad times, and it's hard to stand strong during the bad times. And if we can understand that, how much more so the fans of the Leafs, who have been practicing social distancing from the Stanley Cup since 1967. <laughs> but more seriously, Paul points to the unity that they experience and the fact that their suffering actually can provide commonality as well. In a curious way, he even presents their suffering as a gift. Here's what he says in, in verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What he says here is a little hard to get our head around. But here's a bit of an insight to what's happening. You see, there's this well-known phenomenon, this phenomenon that's been studied quite extensively, that people who endure common tragedy and struggle tend to be bound together by it. Think, for example, of, of men and women who have fought wars together. There's this unique lifelong bond that they have with each other that people who weren't there don't fully understand. Uh, families, couples who have lost a child for various reasons tend to come together in support groups where they can relate to one another. People who have addictions uh, go to AA meetings and to these recovery groups where there's a commonality that binds them together. Even in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, this is the first time in my generation, perhaps even in your generation, that I can recall there being this, this global response where all people are focused upon a global response to a single crisis. 
You see, what Paul's suggesting to them here is that just as they believe in Jesus Christ and that their, that their ability and that his revelation to them is a gift that they've received and that unites them together, so too does their suffering together. And while the Philippians' faith unites them, their common struggle galvanizes them into one solid unit. But what does that look like? Like, like what does it mean to stand together in Christ? Because I think we all understand that to tell somebody to do something is one thing, but to actually instruct them in it, to, to train them in it, is something completely different. You know, when I was a teenager, one of the first jobs I had was at Crystal Glass. And I mainly worked in the warehouse to unload windshields and help install the occasional piece of glass in various places. But at the same time, there was this van I would drive around to make deliveries in, whether it was taking a customer who dropped their car off to go run some errands or to drop off pieces of glass and supplies to other places in town. It was fine for a couple of weeks until the manager came back and brought a new vehicle that everyone was really excited about. And it happened to be this brand new Chevy S10. And, and I was happy I had a chance to drive a truck now, but when I got into it, I didn't fully understand at the time, but, but it had what's called a rack and pinion steering with no power steering. So you had to like strong arm this thing in order to turn the wheel. It took both hands and all your might. And at the same time, it had a stick shift. And I didn't know how to drive stick. So I went home, and fortunately my sister had a car with a stick shift. So she and I went out, and we did a crash course on how to drive a stick. I go to work the next day thinking, during my deliveries, I'll, I'll figure this thing out. It'll be okay. But I get to work, and wouldn't you know it, I walk in the door, and the manager, the first thing, he tells me to go do something. He tells me to go drive this nice couple to go get their groceries a few blocks away. So I jump in this Chevy S10, both arms cranking on the wheel, trying to figure out the stick shift simultaneously as we completely camel down the road, giving them whiplash all the way to the store. And needless to say, they, they took a taxi back to the office after I drove them there. You see, telling somebody to do something isn't always sufficient. Sometimes we need to provide instruction to them as well in proper training. And when we come to chapter 2, Paul expounds upon what he's been saying so far. And he starts to get a little more specific of what this would actually look like. So here's what he says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, see what he's saying here is that all those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are said to be in Christ. And they have this transforming presence of Christ with them that, that makes them children of God. And, and through this vertical relationship with God, they can experience things like, like, like encouragement and, and comfort and, and fellowship and tenderness and compassion. But then Paul goes on here by saying that those who have made this commitment, this vertical relationship with Christ, he speaks next that they need to share that with others. Because as we continue to read in verse 2, it says, Then make my joy complete. How would, they, how would they make Paul's joy complete? Well, he says that they can do so by being like-minded. That, that doesn't mean they agree about everything. But it means that they're working together on things. That they are working to serve each other, being like-minded. 
He says he can make his joy complete by having the same love. That doesn't mean that they love the same things. Like there can be fans of the Oilers and fans of the Flames that I don't fully understand, but I can appreciate that we have the shared love of a sport. We have the same love. He says that you can make his joy complete by being one in spirit and one in mind. You see, as the Holy Spirit unites us, we find that each of us plays a role in advancing the Holy Spirit's purposes. Primarily, the purpose of inviting people who are outside of our fellowship, outside of our unity, to be invited into it through the advancement of the gospel. In summary, what Paul's saying here is that he doesn't want, he doesn't expect the church to be made up of cookie-cutter Christians where every single cookie looks the exact same. Every single Christian is identical, like they're just robots. That's not what he's expecting, not what he's looking for. But he desires for them to live the unique, individual, beautiful creations God has made them to be, but to do so as soulmates. Now, this idea of soulmates in our secular society is often defined as feeling a deep, kind of natural affinity or connection to another person. And typically you may say that somebody like your spouse is your soulmate. Or if you've had a friend since like kindergarten and you've been almost lifelong friends and you imagine you'll be friends for the rest of your days as well, you'd say that we have this lifelong bond where I just feel more complete when we're together than when we're apart. But for our purposes here today in Philippians chapter 2, these definitions hold true, except there's one significant difference. You see, when it comes to the church, the basis of us being soulmates in the church is not based upon who we are or or our personalities or, or what we may have accomplished, but it's based upon the fellowship with the Holy Spirit that resides within each one of us as we strive to stand strong together in one spirit, in one faith, for one gospel. And this is the attitude that people in the church, not within the church building, meaning the church is a fellowship. This is the attitude that people who are part of the fellowship of the church are to have towards one another. You know, and, and I gotta believe that if we were successful in doing this 24-7, 365, if we could successfully do it all the time, that it would stop the world in their tracks. And they would be coming to us going, how can I get in on that? But I kind of wonder, perhaps you've experienced something different than that in church at times. Perhaps you've experienced something more like what Paul actually warns us against in verse 3, where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You see, in these, this verse here, in verse 3 and 4, he points out three attitudes. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, and self-centeredness. That are the mortal enemies of unity. Now, let's look at them really, really briefly individually. You see, there's nothing inherently wrong with ambition. Ambition is basically just this desire to succeed. And and success in the church, in the world, in our lives, and families is a good thing. But what he's talking about here is selfish ambition. 
And selfish ambition is different than just ambition because ambition says I'm striving to succeed. Selfish ambition says it's not enough for me just to succeed. Somebody else must fail in order for me to succeed. And Paul uses the same term, selfish ambition, last week when he talked about his rivals that were trying to make his life miserable for him. And so he warns it against it here. He also talks about vain conceit. And and conceit can tend to lead to this inflated idea of self-importance. And when we have self-importance, that often gets expressed by being consumed by things of the world. I came across an example of this the other day. I saw a story that was talking about in countries around the world, they hold auctions to auction off the really high-priced personalized license plates. You've probably seen some of these as you drive down the road where there's a combination of letters and numbers that come together and require deciphering to, to spell a word or, or a saying. Sometimes they're humorous. Uh, sometimes they're confusing. Perhaps you've been stuck at a red light just kind of staring at it going, what in the world does that stand for? What does that mean? Well, in this auction, these vanity plates, as they're sometimes called, that get auctioned, these plates that get auctioned off, the, the top 10 most expensive ones quite often are models of cars. So if you own like a, like a Mercedes, you might have an M1, or there's a guy who owned a, like a Ferrari 250, and so he got the plate 250. These are the highest price ones. But one of the highest priced vanity plates that is not a car model was bought by a Russian billionaire for $375,000. And it simply reads VIP1. Now, it's hard to understand. It's hard to deny that spending that much money on that plate is anything else than being motivated by vain conceit, by an increased inflated sense of self-importance. And then finally, Paul talks here about self-centeredness. And this is the idea of turning our focus from the good of others towards the self, towards our self-interest, to our self-advancement. And quite often, I, I think this idea of inflated self-centeredness, especially when we're talking about groups and congregations, emerges from a fear of not being noticed, of not being valued. This idea that if I don't contend for myself, well then who will? Now, Paul is not saying here that when you become part of a group that you cease to matter. He's not saying you cease to have influence because the fact of the matter is in any healthy fellowship, in any healthy relationship, there needs to be a genuine desire to know and to include one another's ideas and passions and giftings. Whether we're talking about a healthy marriage a healthy family, a a fruitful business partnership, a a healthy friendship. In all those cases, it's important to be known and to know others and to have the sharing and the appreciation of each other and their ideas. But we also need to understand that it's not about me, it's about the we. And in the church, we have the ultimate goal of advancing not our own names, not even the own names of our church, but we have the ultimate goal of advancing the name of Jesus Christ. So, standing strong together, standing strong together provides confidence. It provides power. It provides us with resolve. 
Because when we all stand together, whatever it is that you may be feeling, whatever it is that you might be experiencing today, I I want you to know that you are not alone. That even if we are scattered to different places around the city and the region, even if we are in moments of isolation, that we stand strong together in one spirit, in one faith, for one gospel that unites us and that transcends the situations in our lives. And we here at West Meadows stand strong together during these days in particular. Now, if you are watching this online or if you're listening to this on the podcast and and you have not in the past been part of West Meadows, well, we invite you to join us. Even during this time of being scattered, what better time to join us? Not, Not to join us in a building as a church, but to join us in a fellowship as a church, to stand with us during this time as well. Or perhaps you're watching or, or listening and you're not even a follower of Jesus Christ. You, you may have heard the name of Jesus before but not fully understand the relevance for your own life. Well, let me invite you. Let me invite you to experience a life that is better with Jesus. For now and for all of eternity. That doesn't mean a perfect life. It doesn't mean a problem-free life. You, you heard me speak this a few moments ago about this calling to share in suffering. But as we're called to share in the suffering of Christ, we're also promised to share in the victory of Christ. And that victory is available to you today. Because God loves you. God loves you enough that he sent his one and only son into this world. That whoever places their belief, whoever places their trust in him, will be saved. And will experience eternal life. And that's made possible by Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to this world who taught us how to live with one another, how to live a relationship with God. And then by paying the price for our sins upon the cross, he made a way for it to be possible for us to live in relationship with God. And as he gave his life for our sins in our place, and he was buried in the ground, as we'll talk about on Friday, Good Friday, but as we'll also celebrate on Sunday, Jesus rose victorious. And that victory is a gift he offers to each and every single one of us. And that if you accept his gift of forgiveness, the Bible tells us that we will be set free from our sins. We will be set free from the shame, from the guilt, from the penalty. It says we brought into the family of God. And that we will be unified in the body of Christ today in this very moment as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us to comfort us, to counsel us, and to convict us of the areas that, that we need to strive to live more like Christ. And that Holy Spirit that unifies us, that one spirit, that one faith, that one gospel, also empowers us. As Paul said in the very first words of this passage we looked at today, it empowers us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to just close by praying for you. If you do not yet know Christ and would like to know more about that or talk to somebody about it, uh, feel free to go to our website or send me an email or make a phone call to me. I'd love to talk with you more. You can even right now in the comments section just, uh, just put a little note in there in myself or even some other wonderful people in this fellowship of Christ will come alongside and talk with you and support and encourage you. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, We thank you that we can lean upon Christ. That no matter what is going on in our lives, whether we're we're, we're navigating this world pretty good today or, or if we feel like we are under its thumb, that in every situation, 
because of your victory, we are identified with you and can trust in you, can press into you. We can experience the transforming, empowering presence of your spirit. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, that dwells within each of us, that even when we are geographically separated, we know we stand strong together because of you. God, I pray that right now for those who are listening in their homes or wherever they may be, that they would just sense the peace of your presence with them. They'd understand that you know what's going on in their lives, that you know their struggles, their fears, you know the victories that, that they want to praise you for right now, and all these things, God. May they just know that you smile upon them, that you love them, that you've got them. Thank you, Lord, that we are a church scattered, which just means that we can go forth into new ways, to new people, to new places, and new opportunities to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Empower us to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. Thank you for joining us again this past Sunday. We will see you again, not on Sunday, but also on Friday, this Friday, at 10 a.m. for our Good Friday service. We'll see you then.